Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 77 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. Sanctions have taken a bit of a backseat this week, but there's plenty on fraud and money laundering to take up the slack. There'll also be a roundup of the mass cyber attack news this week. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast right there in the description. We'll start with sanctions, and I said there wasn't much. We'll start in the US, where 3M and Emigrant Bank have agreed settlements with the U.S. Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control over the breach of the Iranian sanctions regime. 3M has agreed to pay 9.6 million U.S. dollars for 54 apparent breaches, while Emigrant Bank has agreed to remit almost $32,000 in settlement of claims relating to the processing of transactions for accounts of individuals ordinarily resident in Iran. Links to both notices and the press release can be found in the podcast description in the uk the office of foreign uh, sorry no in the uk the office of financial sanctions implementation or ofsi has amended and made additions to the consolidated list specifically against russian individuals and one entity the one entity being the russian central election commission this is all to do with the sham elections which have taken place in occupied ukraine It's also issued a license relating to correspondent banking payments respecting Russia and Belarus. Notices and updated consolidated list can be found in the podcast description. Finally, on sanctions this week, the authorities in Switzerland have aligned with EU sanctions on Iranian producers of drones, which are being put to use by Russians in Ukraine. That's it for sanctions. Told you there wasn't much. Now, we move to look to fraud news. The fraud news this week begins in the United States where there's the usual mass of fraud-related stories, but I'm going to highlight two, which, as with last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, are instances of COVID-19 scheme fraud. The first is news that two brothers have pleaded guilty to, quotes, conspiracy to commit bank fraud and wire fraud for their participation in a scheme to file fraudulent loan applications seeking forgivable paycheck protection program loans guaranteed by the Small Business Administration under the COVID Aid or Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. They're scheduled to be sentenced in January 2024. The second story is the sentencing and imprisonment of five individuals from Cleveland, Ohio, quotes, who submitted and caused the submission of fraudulent applications for pandemic and employment insurance benefits to the California Employment Development Department and other state enforcement agencies. As part of the scheme, the members of the conspiracy knowingly made false statements and omissions on pandemic unemployment insurance benefits applications regarding employment history, residency, and more to appear eligible to receive benefits. As a result, California Employment Development Department and other state workforce agencies approved more than $800 thousand dollars in unemployment insurance benefits in the names of unwitting individuals. The benefits were preloaded on bank-issued debit cards and sent through the US mail. After receiving the debit cards, 
the defendants used the cards issued in the names of other people to make cash withdrawals at various ATMs in the Northern District of Ohio. Link to the press releases in both of these cases, together with other instances of fraud announced by the US Department of Justice this week, can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has issued a press release marking the start of the tenure of its director, Nick Fgrave. Fgrave has said, as the press release provides, fraud wrecks lives and undermines the economy. I'm committed to building the strong, dynamic and pragmatic authority the UK needs to fight today's most heinous economic crimes. Let's certainly hope he says more interesting and less surprising things over the next few years. Link to the press release is in the podcast description if you'd like to read it, although it's not particularly long. I've said the highlight of it just there. The final piece of fraud news this week is a bit of good news, I suppose, if you ignore the fact that they were convicted and imprisoned in the first place. But five more former post office workers who were wrongfully convicted following the Post Office Horizon software scandal have had their convictions set aside and returned to court by the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for fraud news. We turn attention now to money laundering. In terms of the money laundering news this week, we start in the US, where the Securities and Exchange Commission has announced that charges against DWS Investment Management Americas, or DWS, which is a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank, have been settled, with DWS agreeing to pay a total of $25 million for both its failure to develop a mutual fund anti-money laundering program and for misstatements regarding its Environmental, Social and Governance, or ESG, investment process. In relation to the anti-money laundering breach, DWS agreed a cease and desist order and $6 million in penalties. Link to the Securities and Exchange Commission press release is in the podcast description. In the UK, it's been widely reported that Santander, the banking group, has ended its relationship with consultancy firm EY, or Ernst & Young as it used to be. The suggestion is that anti-financial crime work provided to Santander by EY was insufficient and that EY offered Santander £15 million by way of a refund. In Europe, the Financial Action Task Force has published its mutual evaluation on Luxembourg. The gist of the report is that Luxembourg's first national risk assessment, completed in 2018, triggered several changes in its AML and CFT regime, such as improvements to the legal framework, establishment of new agencies, and investment in automated tools to increase efficiencies. These efforts are starting to bear fruit in some authorities and sectors more than in others. However, Luxembourg needs to maintain a sustainable path to keep course with these efforts and align them with its role as international as an international financial hub with significant cross-border financial flows, international clientele and high-risk products and services. The link to the full report is in the podcast description. Sticking with Europe, the public prosecutor in Paris is examining money laundering allegations over a deal concerning um, Bernard Arno, who is a billionaire businessman, and a Russian businessman, Nikolai Sarkisov. The deal concerns the purchase of a ski resort. The parties are said never to have met, according to reports, and Sarkisov, or certainly a spokesperson for him, has denied the allegations. Now to Jersey, where the Money Val body has started a two-week assessment of Jersey's measures to combat money laundering. 
Moneyval, for those who don't know, is a committee of the Council of Europe, entrusted with the task of assessing compliance with the principal international standards to counter money laundering and the financing of terrorism and the effectiveness of their implementation, as well as with the task of making recommendations to national authorities in respect of necessary improvements to their systems. Now, a bit of bribery and anti-corruption news this week. It's quite interesting range of bribery and anti-corruption news. There may not be much of it, but as I said, it's interesting. We'll start in Pakistan, where the National Accountability Bureau, the principal anti-corruption agency in the country, has initiated a host of corruption cases against politicians, including further charges against former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan, who has recently uh, been sentenced to three years imprisonment and banned from politics for five years. The new round of investigations relate to funds raised for victims of flooding and issues in concerning payment records. In China, it's been reported that the former chair of the Chinese Football Association has been charged with bribery. Chen Yuan, possibly, is alleged to have abused his position to obtain benefits and the illegal acceptance of other people's property and possessions. And kind of in related news here, other bribery allegations relating to football. Spanish football club Barcelona is under formal investigation for alleged bribery linked to Spain's National Refereeing Committee. Barcelona has denied any wrongdoing and the investigation continues. Big news from the US this week is that Albemarle Corporation, which is a, a chemicals production company, has agreed to pay 103 million US dollars in settlement of violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977. The investigation found that despite significant red flags, and this is a direct quote, Albemarle used agents from at least 2009 through to 2017 that paid bribes to obtain sales of refinery catalysts to public sector oil refineries in Vietnam, India, and Indonesia, and to private sector oil refineries in India. In addition, Albemarle violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act record-keeping requirements and failed to devise and maintain a sufficient system of internal accounting controls to provide reasonable assurances that payments made to agents in Vietnam, Indonesia, India, China and the United Arab Emirates were for legitimate services. Links to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice press release on that matter are in the podcast description. Now, before we delve into this week's weighty cyber attack news, just a quick diversion to market abuse. There's one tale of alleged market abuse this week, and it's from the US, where a former employee of two unnamed leading global financial institutions has been charged with insider trading. As the DOG press, uh, DOJ press release provides, quotes, Anthony Vigiano, who's the accused, betrayed the trust of his employers by tipping his friends with material non-public information, undermining the integrity of our financial markets in the process. Vigiano is charged alongside three others. Links to the DOJ and SEC press releases are in the podcast description. Now, after a relatively quiet couple of weeks, there's been a massive uptick in cyber attack news this week. We'll start in the UK, where several charities have reported that an attack on a service provider, which happened in August this year, has resulted in a compromise to their systems. The provider is about 
Loyalty, that's the corporation name, it provides services to a range of charities, including the Dogs Trust, the RSPCA, which for those who don't know is the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, it's an animal charity, and others. Personal data belonging to donors may have been compromised in the attack by an as yet unknown perpetrator. News now of a wider impact of a cyber attack, and this is, it, it's quite sad, this really, genuinely sad, every cyber attack is sad, but this is genuinely sad, where KMP, which is a UK logistics-based, uh, UK-based logistics company, has entered administration with the loss of 730 jobs. The administration is blamed on a cyber attack which happened in June this year. More transport-related cyber news with reports that the website of Edinburgh Trams has been taken offline as a temporary response to a cyber attack. However, I checked on Friday and it was all back online. Staying in the UK, it's been reported this week that cybersecurity breaches at financial services firms have increased by more than 300%. The figures have been reported by law firm Reynolds Porter Chamberlain, they identify an increase in reports of cybersecurity breaches to the Information Commissioner's Office from 187 in 2021-22 to 640 in 2022-23, with the pension sector reporting the biggest rise, increasing from 6 in 2021-22 to 246 in 2022-2023. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. Outside the UK now, and to Europe, where the Bulgarian fact-checking website factcheck.bg has been subjected to a cyber attack. The site is notorious for correcting Russian disinformation, and while there's no claim of responsibility as yet, I think the usual suspects might well be in the frame. In not entirely unrelated news, Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection has identified 762 cyberattack incidents in the first half of 2023, whereas the same period in 2022 saw 342 cyberattacks. However, and this I suppose is the interesting part of it, the critical nature of the attacks has reduced, indicating that though there may be more attacks, they appear to be, coming, to be becoming less successful. In Iran, a cyberattack on the Ministry of Science has resulted in the release of a massive documentation relating to protests and dissenting voices in academia. The group which has claimed responsibility, I'll give this my best shot, Giam Ta Sanaguni, which is translated as Uprising Till Overthrow, linked to the People's Mujahideen Kalk Organization, or MEK, claims it has over 20,000 documents as a result of the attack. On the subject of cyber attacks on government agencies, Canada has reported that Indian cyber attackers have hacked various government agency websites. These attacks were apparently so minor that they were regarded as nuisance, or having only nuisance value rather than substantive. But it does remind of the vulnerability of government websites to cyber attack, an issue which has been widely reported over the last 12 to 18 months and indeed which we've reflected on in this podcast. Now, in case any of you have been missing it, there's more this week on the Move It cyber attack with an announcement from the National Student Clearinghouse in the US which provides degree and enrollment verification services 
indicating that 890 schools signed up for its services had been impacted by the attack. Honestly, after a quiet few weeks on the move attack, I thought we'd finally reach the end of it, but no. Will there be more? I suppose it's possible. But I think we must be coming to the point where there can't be much more to come out. Famous last words, I don't know. We'll see. Now, for more legacy cyber news attack, we go to the MGM and Caesars cyber attacks where lawsuits have apparently been filed for failure to protect personal information. An investigation is also underway by the Nevada Gaming Control Board. Sticking with the US, the Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, Information Technology and Government Innovation and the Subcommittee on Economic Growth, Energy Policy and Regulatory Affairs opened a joint hearing on combating ransomware attacks. Link to the hearing from the YouTube channel is in the podcast description. Now, an interesting report has been published this week indicating that All is not well in the cyber incident reporting world. The Cybersecurity Disasters Survey Incident Reporting and Disclosure, which has been created or produced by Keeper Security, indicates that 41% of cyber attacks are not reported up an internal structure to the senior management team, while almost half, 48%, of incidents are not reported to relevant authorities. I couldn't quite believe this when I read this statistic. It's eye-opening. And, frankly, I'd imagine it'll cause risk management compliance boards, and certainly in the UK, the Information Commissioner's Office, to hyperventilate just a little bit. The reasons for the failure to report are varied from fear of repercussion, 43%, concerns about brand, 36%, that reporting was not needed, also 36%, and that it simply slipped the mind of the person with responsibility, 32%. It's not difficult to have a borderline speechless reaction to reading through that information, or certainly maybe to hearing that information. Indeed, consideration that reporting was not needed is borderline laughable. This is especially so because in the UK, the guidance on the Information Commissioner's website is comprehensive and clear, as you might expect it to be. Firms need to wake up and get with the importance of the issue. These attitudes quite simply aren't good enough. Anyway, that's it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a genuinely great week, everyone.